You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with uh, Kyla Lee and not Paul Doroshenko yet. Um, I am going to first uh, kick off this episode with a really interesting discussion with Grant Gottgatru, friend of the podcast. You have previously heard Grant, if you've listened to the episodes, uh, talking about speed enforcement and uh, speed detection equipment. Grant also has experience as a police act liaison on, meaning sort of like a council but not council um, fellow police officer for officers facing discipline. And he's going to join us to share some really interesting insight into the case of a new Westminster police officer who is currently facing discipline after receiving an immediate roadside prohibition. So we're going to kick off the discussion with Grant. So thank you, Grant Gokkatru, for joining me again on the podcast. It's so nice to have you back. It's my pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm doing this for the very first time by telephone, so if I completely blunder and screw it up and you sound awful and horrible, it's not my fault. Paul set it all up. <laughs> well, I sound awful anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> oh, no, you were very popular last time. Um, I, I wanted to not talk to you about your area of most expertise, that being speeding. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about something else that you used to do, which was police act agent work. Yes. What? Explain that. Assume, assume I know nothing about it. I mean, I know very little, but assume I know nothing at all. Uh, you want to know specifically about the police act or the role of the agent? The role of the agent. Like, wh- what would you do? I mean, the police act, we know that's the legislation that governs the conduct of police. Correct. Yes. So the role of the police act agent is to act as basically the advocate for the um, officer that is under investigation. So you're kind of and... like a like a quasi-lawyer? Yes. In fact, um, I would refer to the officers as my clients <laughs> when I was when I was. Uh, I hope. Well, of course, yeah, I referred, but yes, exactly. But I always referred to them as my client. And basically, your um, the, the 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 agents go on a um, a course. It's a a day or two long where you where you um, basically are brought up to speed with the police act and the. Um, um, the offenses under the Police Act, whether they're internal discipline or public trust, right. uh, the, the disciplinary defaults, all of that stuff. And basically, uh, the agent uh, acts as... Um, is it kind because, of defense counsel, or is it different? Kind of, sort of. What, 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 the, what the agent does is the agent, first of all, once the, once the officer says, okay, I want you to represent me as the agent, then I, as the agent, would contact the investigating officer from professional standards unit, or for people who don't know what that means, basically internal affairs, because everyone knows what that is. Um, They're the bad uh, guys in the TV show. Exactly right. So... <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's not quite like that, obviously. <laughs> a lot of the, well, most of your mem- investigators in PSU are very, uh, are good investigators. Uh, um, 
And once I would let the investigator know, okay, I'm I'm, an, I'm the agent for Constable So and So, then I would get a copy of um, obviously the notice of complaint, uh, any documentation from well, first of all, from the police, uh, from the OPCC saying that the uh, complaint is admissible and what uh, and any course of investigation, and then. Um, also because the officer has to provide a duty report, mm-hmm. um, my role as the agent would be to assist in, um, in responding to that, um, request for a duty report so that the officer was, um, is providing the correct information and not, sometimes they just drone on and on and on <laughs> about irrelevant stuff. Yeah. And it's like, get to the point yeah. and you look at the statement and you go, yeah, that statement covers everything. Okay. It's not, it's not, it's not that I'm, I'm, um, tailoring or, or telling them to write the statement in a certain way. But if they're asked a simple yes or no question, did you do this? Then you're going to respond with yes or no. You're not going to spend five pages of a statement on that unless they ask you to describe it. Um, and then also just to, uh, and, and if there's any investigative areas that the internal affairs uh, investigator could or should be looking at, then I, as the agent, would say that to them. Hey, you, you might want to consider doing it. Did you, yeah. so in the course of, of working as an agent, did you ever work with officers who are, who were facing discipline over immediate roadside prohibitions? Yes. Now, I don't know, I, I assume you've read the news story about a new Westminster uh, police officer who is um, facing discipline. She had um, an initial penalty assigned to her after getting an IRP while off-duty. That was reviewed, yeah. it was increased, and then reviewed again. That's right. What can you, why, why, why would this happen? The wild and wacky world of the OPCC, <laughs> basically. Um, the whole design of the Police Act is not, it's supposed to be uh, corrective measures, not punitive or disciplinary, basically. It's but not designed. IR- but the whole point of an IRP is supposed to be a corrective measure. Like, this is what I don't get. She's off duty. So she's not, you know, she's not drunk at work. She's not um, putting the public at risk well in the course of her policing. She's off duty. She has maybe one too many glasses of wine. She goes through a roadblock. She blows a fail. The Supreme Court of Canada, well, I mean, she did blow the fail. Whether or not it's reliable, I guess, is the other issue. The Supreme Court of Canada has said, you know, you you, you don't commit an offense by um, by getting an IRP. It's not an offense. So why is she being treated as badly as any police officer who got a conviction for impaired driving, who committed a criminal offense? Years ago, there was a change that any um, offense under the Motor Vehicle Act that was Mm -hmm. alcohol-related would automatically um, initiate... um, uh, an investigation including the, things that aren't offenses like IRPs or 24 hours or 12 hours uh, although it, it actually stem it stemmed from a 24-hour driving prohibition back in the um, in the 2000s that's ridiculous uh, yeah because obviously you know there's they don't want um, obviously you know the the scarlet letter is any you know 
drinking offenses and alcohol and whatnot. And, and, I know, but they're the they're treating them like offenses when the law says they're not offenses. Oh no, I Does no, that I not agree with anything? you. Well, of course well, you agree with me. <laughs> well, well, you see, but you have to understand that the OPCC has these uh, grand sweeping powers, and they can overturn, they can order investigations, um, they can order investigations that um, they uh, that um, a complainant doesn't want to um, have investigated. So, if you decide you're going to file a, a, a complaint against a police officer. Um, and then you decide to change your mind about it and say, no, I don't want to participate in this anymore. The OPCC can still continue with that investigation. Oh, similar, similar to Crown Council, where, like, if you, this happens in spousal assault situations all the time, you, you report an assault and then you're like, oh, you know what? I, I had it coming. Um, and. And the OPCC can also overturn, uh, any findings by the, uh, the disciplinary authority, um, which ends up that's when they end up going to a uh, right, which a is what's hearing. happening to this this new Westminster officer. She's had That's findings right. of her discipline overturned, and they're they're suggesting you know multi day suspensions without pay. Yes, I know, and it's funny because a lot of times, what happens when they when they do the public when they do the public hearing? It's heard before a retired judge, and the retired judge will. Um, quite often not side with the OPCC and their, oh no, we want this, we want to stiff a penalty, because they'll always go with, well, what's the range of penalties normally for this type of offense? Mm-hmm. Uh, the one officer that uh, I represented um, who received an IRP, um, um, the, the disciplinary authority, actually, in that case, who was a buffoon, um, wanted wanted that uh, officer fired, which is, I mean, that's even worse. Well, I mean, and, have... and it, well, it was ludicrous because the range of penalties was not even close to being terminated. So, of course, that got overturned. But that particular disciplinary authority uh, uh, figure from a different police agency um, clearly showed, um, you know, you know, especially when Crown and Defense, if you want to call it Crown and Defense, but when the when the um, um, the lawyer representing the officer and 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 the um, um, lawyer representing the uh, investigator all said, uh, "No, no, we agree with this penalty," and the disciplinary authority said, "No, it, it, it fired. I'm going to recommend fired." It's like, well, that'd be like you know, you've experienced that when you and Crown come to an agreement. Uh, not it doesn't happen very often when the judge overrules both of you and say no. Oh yeah, that's when you're. That happened to me in in traffic court earlier this week, and I I tried to advocate for my client uh, despite the fact that the JJP was not uh, not on side with the resolution I'd worked out with the officer. And uh, yeah, right. It, and uh, I I won't. Um, I won't get into too many more details than that. But it was not a uh, not a fun experience. No, everything no, and, did and work it, out in the end, but you know. Well, that's good. Yeah, but no, because you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, this you know they're they're asking for uh, he wants I don't know um, how many days suspension or something like that for uh, you know so it goes beyond uh, corrective and now it becomes punitive and uh, and an extremely disciplinary for what uh, a motor vehicle act offense that what basically what it boils down to. 
It's less than a motor vehicle act offense. Technically, a speeding ticket is an offense, and an IRP is not. Yeah, but the IRP goes on your driving record, right? So does the speeding ticket. Exactly. So that's why. I mean, I refer to it, from from a layman's term, I refer to it as a motor vehicle act offense. From you, of course, from your fact-based part with the, what the supreme court said is like it's it doesn't it's not an offense but there is you're being penalized yeah. when you get an irp it's not true penal consequences yeah and and the and the opcc has decided in their infinite wisdom that no no it's 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 it, it, it it's impaired driving no it's not impaired driving in fact this this officer that i represented for the irp the the the, they kept referring to it as impaired driving. It's like, it's not impaired driving, so stop it. Yeah, and the, I mean, even if you look at the report from the um, police complaints commissioner here, it says it refers to the range of penalties, and it refers to the penalties for impaired driving. But this is not impaired driving. It is not a criminal code conviction. It is not a criminal code offense. You That's could right. never be charged criminally for failing an ASD test. And here this officer is getting treated the same way. And I think if those are the consequences, like, I don't know how you feel about this, but if those are the consequences that people face and and the experience of this, this officer and what she's going through is not dissimilar to what other people in numerous other professions experience, numerous other jobs, um, if the consequences are, are the same effectively as it being an offense, if the collateral outcome is the same, how can we say that it's not an offense? How can we say that it's somehow less serious? Well, exactly. But like I said, the OPCC marches to the beat of their own drum, and they always have. Has anyone argued before the OPCC, to your knowledge, that uh, because an IRP is not an offense, it should be treated differently than a motor vehicle act offense or a criminal code. You offense? know, the person, you know, the person who would probably know that best would be, uh, Tom Stemmon. Stem- oh, I always call him stack of mattresses. That's his nickname, but I forget. Stack his, of his mattresses. Name. Well, that's what everyone called him for years. Tom, cause no one can pronounce his last name. It's a big Greek name. And we just called him Tom stack of mattresses. Cause it just sounded hilarious. Well, we're uh, off. The, we're off the air. I want to hear more about that, but do you think he'd yeah. come on the podcast? Well, he would certainly give you an answer as to whether or not that part was argued. Um, <laughs> right. uh, because he has a lot decision. of... Pardon me? I could also search the decisions, probably. Well, I have looked on uh, I have looked on um, the OPCC every now and again just for shits and giggles to see what kind of uh, stuff's on there. And, I mean, some of the stuff that's on there, the officers were cr- clearly idiotic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, what are you thinking? Like, mm-hmm. why are you... Um, as a, as a as a senior officer, uh, you know, patting a, a a junior female officer on her ass. You know, why would you do that? Yeah, and see, to me, that's the type of stuff that's more deserving of rebuke than something you do off duty that isn't an offense. If we're going to say that IRPs aren't serious enough to be an offense, let's make that consistent across the board. And as as a disciplinary authority acting in a quasi-judicial capacity, rendering administrative decisions and doling out punishment. The the OPCC is a tribunal. And as a tribunal, uh, they are to some extent, you know, some type of quasi-governmental body. And as a quasi-governmental body, why are they not acting consistent with every other governmental body? 
I guess this, this just feels like the IRP scheme has thrown all these aspects of our legal system into chaos. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's not applied correctly. They don't understand, especially the OPCC, that it's not only is it not an offense, they keep referring to it as impaired driving, when it's not. It's, it says right on the IRP, the prohibition, that your ability is affected by alcohol, not impaired by alcohol. But they kept saying, and I even said that with the officer that I was representing. I said, stop referring it to it as impaired driving. It's not. So what could a person do to defend themselves against a disciplinary action like this in the context of an IRP? Like, What is available to this officer to help her out? Oh, a public hearing. You, you get a, you go for a public hearing so that it's heard before a, a retired, uh, provincial court judge who goes, yeah, no. no. You're, you're being, you're being excessive. The range of penalties is, you know, uh, 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 uh you know, uh, it's a, especially if it's a first offense, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, if it's a first offense, if they've never done anything before, then it's like, okay, well, this is, you know, the one day suspension. So okay. in That's the cases fine. that you've seen in the past, have they gone to public hearing? Well, the one with the officer that I represented that, were gonna, that, that the disciplinary authority wanted to fire, yes. And, and obviously got overturned. Said, <laughs> no, you can't yeah. fire this person. <laughs> I mean, unless she got the IRP while on duty operating a police vehicle, which would be, you know... Well, true, yeah, but there was, I mean, there was a myriad of errors with that particular, with that IRP anyways. I mean, had she got a hold of me right away, I would have said, you need to file a dispute for your IRP, because this, there's no way that the, 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 that the sample, and there was only one sample, was reliable. Yeah. Um, because... Uh, and how know, does that a, how does that factor into it? Like there are defenses to IRPs, there are issues that affect the reliability of ASD samples. How does that affect... I, I presented all of that to the um, to the investigator who put and recorded it all, but unfortunately, it's like it's like it's almost like this particularly disciplinary authority a one time must have worked at Road Safe BC because he didn't care. He just said, "Oh, it was a fail. Therefore, it was a fail." Right. Right. Instead of saying, "Well, no, the steps were breached. The sample was contaminated. Clearly, there's no way it can be held as reliable." Right. Well, she should have disputed it. She she missed the seven day window. She didn't have a, an opportunity to dispute it. Oh well, too bad. So sad. It's a fail. It's like you are stupid. <laughs> like like well, like I'm sorry. This this guy was as dumb as a bag of hammers. And so, as if you don't dispute it, the IRP is the IRP. The OPCC doesn't look at what goes behind it, whether it's a validly well, obtained it, fail, whether the well, it is doesn't reliable. get to the OPCC. It doesn't get to the OPCC yet. What happens is when there's an, when the what happens is the there's a disciplinary authority that's assigned and the disciplinary authority is a white shirt from a police agency. Normally it's just internal. Normally the disciplinary like in in, in West Van the disciplinary authority was normally the deputy chief or the chief, but they can delegate it to another white shirt. But they don't do the investigation. There is an investigator from professional standards that conducts the entire investigation. And when they've done their investigation with their recommendations, um, whether it's the, uh, if it's, if the complaint is substantiated or unsubstantiated, and, and they, they say why, and, um, and then they submit it to the DA, the disciplinary authority, who reviews it and normally agrees with the investigator and goes, yes. 
this will be substantiated, you get a one-day penalty. But it's not over yet because the OPCC has to approve that. Right. And OPCC is like God and decides, uh, you know, I don't think so because I have these grand, massive powers and look at me, I'm so tough. Right. But what about, like, I, I still don't understand where the underlying facts come into it or whether they do when you get to an OPCC hearing. Well, the well, the OPCC doesn't have a hearing. All the OPCC, there's someone from the OPCC, there's an analyst that basically watches the whole investigation. Okay. Right? And so then... then and, and then, so what happens is when the disciplinary authority... Uh, when the report is done, when the final investigation report is done and <clears throat> and the DA signs off on it, it is then sent to the OPCC for final, final approval. And then once the OPCC says, yes, we agree, for the most part they do, um, then it's finished. But in this case, um, the OPCC, the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner, <clears throat> decided that they didn't agree with the two final findings, which mm -hmm. means that, which tells me that they, they're on a witch hunt. You think they're on a witch hunt? I of mean, I'd have, to, I'd have to agree with you. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, if I've, I've made that probably as clear as I can make it. But I, I just, I fail to see how, with all of the inherent flaws that can happen with ASD testing, the inability you have really to challenge the evidence in the context of either the IRP roadside or mm -hmm. the IRP review hearing, how you can found such a significant career-altering disciplinary action without the opportunity to look behind the evidence that was gathered and whether it was gathered properly. Well, now you know what it's like to be a, a police officer in BC, um, uh, accountable to the Police Act and the OPCC. Well, it sounds <laughs> because incredibly rules, frustrating. It's very frustrating. The rules change. There's no consistency across the board. And you're kind of left scratching your head going, I don't know. Um, you think that the uh, uh, the DA is pretty switched on, but some of them aren't. Right. You know, some of the some of these white shirts that are that act as DAs are not very switched on. You know, the higher you go, the less oxygen there is. You know, <laughs> the higher you go in an organization, right? You, I think you're very, uh, I think you're very liberal because you no longer work as a police officer, Grant. I don't know that you would have said this. Uh, oh, you of know, course, a I'm, year ago, of course, I'm liberal, absolutely, because because. Um, if I was a police officer still, I could be subject to a, uh, to an internal investigation right now. For sharing um, those views. No, not, no, because for off-duty conduct that could embarrass your organization ah. is, is a disciplinary default <laughs> under the Police Act. Well, and so is this the, is that off-duty conduct that could embarrass your organization, the underpinning on which this new Westminster officer for her off-duty IRP can be penalized? Yes, that's, that, that would be one of the um, disciplinary defaults. The other one, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, um, um, I think I think it was just uh, yeah that's it's it, it's regarding off duty conduct yeah absolutely just off duty conduct. Okay. Um, well, so, thank you. <laughs> you so think you... for think think about it for this second, right? Think about this. You're you're if um, you're driving along, you're a police officer, you're off duty, you're on holidays, whatever, and somebody cuts you off and you yell at them and you flip them the bird. 
Sure. We've all been there. You you can now be in, yeah, you can, if that person complains about you because, you know, for one reason, somehow they find out you're a police officer. You're in a small They town. make a complaint. Now you're getting investigated for off-duty conduct. Wow. Because, because you do what everyone else has done, you know. The Police Act um, was well-meaning when it first, was first brought in. Uh, but it's, it's really, um, everything in the police act is covered everywhere else, either labor law or employment standards or the criminal code or policy. Or immediate roadside prohibitions. Well, yeah, the police act is a great tool. If, if, if you have a, an axe to grind against the police and you just want to file complaints left, right and center that end up, you know, I mean, I've had my, I haven't had a lot of, uh, internals. Uh, the ones I had generally, well, almost all of them stemmed from um, traffic stops. And of those in the traffic stops, they were all bullshit. It was just people wanting to file what's called a leverage complaint. In other mm-hmm. words, well, I'll withdraw my complaint if you withdraw your ticket. Like, right. yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, so there's a lot of abuses under the Police Act, both by people complaining and also by you know the OPCC clearly if they decide they get a bee in the bonnet and they want to make an example of somebody this is what they do so then final question is this a situation of that where they've got a bee in their bonnet and they're making an example and it's an abuse under the police act in your opinion absolutely I think part of it is they want to I think they want to raise the bar for um Penalties of uh, any officers getting an IRP off duty. I think they want to try and raise the bar, raise the penalty, uh, but they're not going to be successful. Okay. They're not going to be successful because of the unreliability of of, of uh, roadside tests. Okay. You know how can, how can you how can you how can you potentially fire someone um, when all they have is a breath sample and an ASD that is unreliable? Give me a break. I'm with you. Give me a break. This is absolutely a uh, an uh, overreach on the part of the OPCC. Thank you, Grant, for joining us again on the podcast to share your views um, and your your insight as a police act agent and former police officer is very very interesting. Um, and I'm sure we'll be chatting again lots in the future. Thank you, Paula. It was my pleasure. You take care. And how can how can people reach you if they want to contact you? Oh, well, they can. Uh, pardon me. Do you have a website? You know what? It's almost up and running. <laughs> and it it's is. In, it's in the final. Well, it's actually. You know what? I don't even remember the name of it. I the, <laughs> the original. That was horrible. I, the original name I had. Um, I was told that's way too long. It'll confuse people. So they came up with some other. Right. When it's up and running, but you know okay. what? At the end of the day, people want to. If people want to get a hold of me, they can contact you. Right yeah, now. that's probably the easiest. I way. can. I can connect anybody to. If anybody wants to get a hold of uh, retired Corporal Gakatru, they can get in touch with me. I will put them in touch with him, and uh, you can always uh, Google him, and eventually you'll figure out how to reach him through Google as well. I'm working on it. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Have a nice night. <laughs> All right, and welcome back to Paul Doroshenko, who's joining me for the second half of this week's episode because he just can't stay away. Well, thanks for having me on once again. 
<laughs> I'm enjoying it. I've been like such a regular guest lately. Anyway, I like this uh, segment where you uh, you know spoke to Grant over the phone. That's a great idea. It feels like uh, as it happens. Dun 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 dun. dun. All right. So, Paul, I first wanted to kick off this episode by asking you about whether um, you had heard the story about these police officers who are in trouble in Georgia. Yeah, it's shocking. Uh, you're talking about the police officers who are using their app on the phone to try and make a determination as to whether or not they were going to arrest somebody. And I'm laughing about it, but it's uh, it's very disturbing. It's horrendous. To the idea that these officers who knew they didn't have the ability to do what they needed to do, they didn't have any speed detection equipment after pulling this woman over for speeding, they didn't even have a mechanism to know where she was speeding. And besides that... They didn't have any tickets, so they didn't even have the equipment to write her a ticket. I so yeah, I didn't follow, get get all those details. Yeah, so so they just <laughs> distilled their decision down to a coin toss, or because we're in the digital age, a coin toss app. Well, maybe they were able to hide the fact that they were doing this because they were using cell phones. If they had actually pulled a coin out, she might have seen them. That's possible um we will never know but they did maybe have that's it. the way they did it in the old days is what i'm saying but the entire thing was recorded yeah, and i i think I this that. this is a good example of two things the first is often the arbitrariness of a decision to arrest or not arrest and secondly the importance of having recordings when police are interacting with individuals Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the, the fascinating thing for me, I mean, I, I started off my career, uh, whatever, 19 years ago when I was articling, and um, we would just make this assumption that the police were doing things correctly. And there was there was no video of any of interactions. And as we see more and more, you know, smartphones out now, everybody's videoing things all the time. Uh, really, the illusion that the police are doing things correctly, this sort of uh, fraud that's been perpetrated on us uh, is uh, has fallen away. And you have to think, if you're a judge these days, um, I think you start with a new cynicism. In the old, you know, long before, I think you would just accept police come to court. They sound very, uh, you know, like they're, they, they, they've got a lot of authority and that they're, they're being wise in their decisions. And uh, then you find out that they are um, behaving like this uh, in reality because of video. And I mean, obviously, it causes um, causes people to distrust the justice system. Uh, but um, you know, I, I I'd like to think that the judges, you know, are members of the public, would be more cynical about the police as a result of this. I'm certainly more cynical of the police now than I've ever been. I think part of the cynicism that you have about police and and mine as well is what we see in immediate roadside prohibition reports. I mean, these are bits of information that we get about police officers and investigations that never make it before a judge and never make it before the court. And and the arbitrariness of decision-making, not in all cases and not even in the majority of them, but enough of them for it to be a concern is is hugely problematic. Yeah, and in many respects with the media roadside prohibitions because there's no consequences for the police. I mean, there's there's no consequences for the police really of lying in a report or just, you know, fabricating it, coloring it up. Uh, I, I just think of how, how uh, tainted the language can be sometimes uh, to try and suggest I, guilt. I had a case today where the officer alleged that my client had watery eyes. This was one of the, you know, symptoms that she was impaired. 
What he left out was that she was crying and telling him about how her marriage was ending. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I mean, if you're outside of BC, you might not know about our immediate roadside prohibition scheme. If you're inside BC, um, one of the there's lots of negative consequences of the uh, IRP immediate roadside prohibition scheme, and one of them that you know we noticed right away was that the quality of police evidence uh, dropped significantly, and police officers began to behave more arbitrarily when they were given the job of being judge at the roadside. The consequences, I think the government, when they put in this requirement for a sworn report, I think they just assumed that the consequences of perjury, this specter of a perjury charge, which has never been borne out, no matter how overblown or false the police report has been, um, the the consequences of that have, have no guidance on what the officers seem to do or put in their reports. And, and I mean, this isn't just an issue with the IRP scheme. The fear of a perjury charge wasn't enough to deter those officers in the Jajanski case. No, I don't, I don't think that deters any of them. And, and, and I don't think the government was, uh, <clears throat> I don't think the government was turning their mind to the fear of the perjury charge. I mean, maybe some lawyers for the government were, I suppose, but well, I don't they think talked it, about it. Yeah, but I think in caucus, there's no way they discussed that. They just didn't really give a damn. They just wanted to come up with some scheme that would save them money in prosecutions and make them money uh, on drunk drivers. And they figured that they'd be able to uh, to uh, cash in and basically get $5,000 from every person. And, and an investigation would cost $100 instead of $1,000. So that was the reason that they did it. I don't think they gave it, you know... Uh, uh, I don't think they gave a fuck, frankly, about uh, whether or not the evidence was going to be reliable. But that's, you know, you know my cynicism. It, maybe, it, it would be nice to see the superintendent sending those obviously false reports to supervisors of police or to police disciplinary authorities for investigation. It would be nice to see that happening. Well, I had one today that I felt was completely false. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the evidence of our client was believable and sensible and we'll see what happens with it but uh, it's disturbing that we see it more and more there's a couple of things that we've noticed have happened um, negative consequences with the IRP scheme we should probably have that as a topic one day but we should get back to these guys using this this app because that's so disturbing is the second point and we see this you know Mm. you and I both defend a lot of cases in Alberta and in Alberta there's always video they all wear the watch guard thingy. I don't know what it's it's called, the little recorder um, on them. And they turn as soon as they conduct the traffic stop, it automatically turns on when the police lights go on and it records the interaction, audio and video. You put the guy in the back of the police car, it switches to the in-car camera in the back and you can see what uh, what the person's doing. And it's so useful to see what they're doing, what they're doing with your client and what your client is doing. Well, we've seen all sorts of things on those videos. There was a case we had um, that was in provincial court in Canmore where there was uh, behavior of one of the police officers really suggested to us that he was being motivated by, uh, you know, uh, racial... um, Stereotyping? Stereotyping, predetermination, racial racial prejudice. Straight up racist. Yeah. Um, And that was on the video. And then there was another one that we had... uh, uh, that I can think of right now in in Edson, and it was the uh, we'd had other cases with the same police officer, uh, and it was very clear that the police officer's reports were 
uh, completely inconsistent with what actually took place in the roadside. He just came up with a uh, a, a different uh, timeline for things than than actually how it played out in the investigation and you know <laughs> so that that part's shocking to me when you know you're on video you know there's a record with a timestamp of what you did when and what you said when and how you said it and you nevertheless write a report that is completely false like do you just misremember that badly well it's i mean it's entirely possible that that you know then previous nine impaired driving investigations that police officer conducted, everybody just pled guilty. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Kylie. Maybe. I mean, you, get... if you, if you get, if you get into the habit of expecting that people are going to plead guilty and never being questioned on your evidence in court, it's the same situation that we have with IRPs. If you don't have to answer for not doing something properly, you fall into the pattern of doing it improperly again and again. Yeah, that was another thing that I had in a case today. I had a uh, an individual who was arrested and detained and uh, looking at the um, administrative driving prohibition report, which is not an IRP, but an ADP. Uh, the police officer had nothing close to grounds to make the detention and the breath demand. And uh, one of the problems with the IRP scheme, I guess we should just have a complete show on problems with the IRP scheme uh, and negative consequences of it. Uh, but one of the consequences there is that the police officers no longer know uh, what constitutes reasonable and probable grounds. The, this individual was uh, uh, could have been uh, subject to an approved screening device test, and that may have elevated the officer's opinion. But as it stands, that opinion will be defective if that matter ends up going to court. And it's, it seems to be purely a case of officers no longer having that skill as a result of having no oversight as a result of conducting immediate roadside prohibitions. Which brings us back to these officers at the roadside. You know, it, it is disturbing what takes place at the roadside. We hear things from clients. We've heard them for years. You wonder if they're true and then you see, you know, stories like this and you discover, you know, yeah, I, I these things happen. They take place and there's police officers doing things like this and there's somebody out there doing something equally bad tonight and it won't be on video. Yeah, you you wonder how many times they one of these officers flipped a coin when it wasn't caught on video or the video wasn't questioned or called out or reviewed by anybody. I mean, do, does anybody go back and review the arrest records of, of the last 50 or 100 arrests made by this officer to determine whether proper procedure was followed? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly hope that somebody would, but I have so little confidence these days in the system that I don't expect that anybody will. And you know, when we had problems with the IRP scheme at the beginning, back to that, okay, we had um, the police uh, not following correct procedure and calibrating Alcosensor 4s. Uh, in uh, the very first case we had was Port Moody, where they were doing up to 50 tests with uh, one bottle of solution when they were only supposed to be doing 10 tests to... Uh, test their uh, their approved screening devices. And when we did reveal it, um, it was basically what I would consider a cover-up. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I look at this and, you know, these officers are, are suspended now and rightly so, but I look at the lack of overall investigation stemming from this and then the consequences that that new Westminster police officer that I talked about with Grant, and I know you haven't heard the discussion, but the consequences that she's facing for doing something that isn't even an offense. But, you know, she faces significant 
disciplinary consequences simply as a result of getting an IRP. But Kyla, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has uh, reported that people who are apprehended drinking and driving have all done it thousands of times before and just got away with it. So, oh, you're right. Yeah. You know what? We should we should fix random breath testing by just making an app. Every time police pull somebody over, they can just press a button on their phone and the app will tell them breath test or not. That would eliminate racial profiling. That would uh, just just make it a perfect system, don't you think? Well, that's interesting because that's how they, they choose whether or not to search your bags in certain airports. In Mexico, you land in Mexico City, you press a button, and uh, it's random. That way there's no suggestion of corruption. Yeah. Which I is interesting because we're going to have the whole specter of, uh, of suggestion of police officers targeting, and we're going to be able to say, wow, are they corrupt officers? Were they on the take? It's interesting, Paul, actually, that you bring up searches at the airport and random searches because I was talking with a friend recently um, who was talking about how his smartwatch uh, connects to his phone and tracks his biometric outputs. So like his heart rate, his activity levels, blood pressure, it's all calculated by your watch. And he was asking me about the potential of police to search your phone and seize that data in a drug-impaired driving investigation. Well, that's a fascinating angle because you think about it, you've got to, uh, after you get to the point of RNP grounds, uh, reasonable and probable grounds to make the detention and the demand for a drug recognition uh, expert to do an evaluation, um, at that point, you are detaining the person. You can search them incidental to arrest. And I guess you could take their watch if you knew that their watch and maybe their phone, their phone. contained evidence you can take, of the offense. I mean, any time you arrest somebody, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that you can search a cell phone incident to arrest for the purposes of gathering evidence related to the offense. Usually that would be sort of the traditional context of, of where a cell phone would be relevant, like if you had a child porn offense and you're looking for porn on the phone, or if you had a drug trafficking offense and you're looking for text messages, hey, can I get a G or whatever, I don't know, lingo. Um, but if you are doing a drug recognition evaluation, that data, pulse rates and things like that is part of the drug recognition evaluation test. It's evidence related to the offense. And tracking where somebody has significant changes in that could give information that could help assist in determining when certain drugs were taken. Yeah, that is, my goodness, that is a scary thought. So basically the police could take your your watch, if you've got an Apple watch or some other watch that monitors things like your pulse, uh, and can monitor other uh, aspects of your, you know, maybe your breathing and things like that. Um, have your pulse rate. Maybe there's a, n a normal pulse rate and an elevated or lower pulse rate that you've mm -hmm. got uh, to get a baseline. Um, and the um, and they could use that data from your app on your phone and your watch connected by Bluetooth to collect evidence from you to use in that investigation. Oh, sure. They could but, determine what your normal pulse rate is and then find out whether it's elevated or lowered 
during the course of the investigation. There is no way that Parliament thought about that when they thought about this legislation. I didn't even think about this until my friend brought it up. But it is completely, and it's, it's something that they can search incidental to arrest if they have reasonable grounds to believe that it is... Related um, to the can, offense? Uh, related to the offense and can provide evidence. They might have to get a, they have to get a warrant to search it. No, they don't. No, the Supreme Court of Canada. If it's unlocked, they they don't. Well, but if it's locked, then don't they have to get a warrant? If 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 it's locked, they can ask you to provide the passcode. You don't have to. This was the Supreme Court of Canada denied leave yeah. on that issue. You don't have to provide the passcode, but they can get a they can seize it um, as evidence related to the offense, and they can go through the normal investigative steps that you take when you see something. Get a warrant, send it to their technicians, and unlock it potentially. I think they could probably compel you to provide the password. They can't. No. No, this, this was a case. Didn't you watch my cases that should have gone to the Supreme Court of Canada but didn't video, uh, I Paul? I probably did, but I can't. I don't remember. <laughs> look, I don't remember all the legal principles. I remember the ones I have to deal with they day can, to day. They can compel you to provide the passcode at the border. They can't pr- compel you to provide the passcode um, in a regular arrest. Uh, that you can be compelled to hand over the phone, but you can't be compelled to unlock it. Well, if you drive up to the border and they suspect that you're that you're uh, high and they get to the point of a drug recognition evaluation and they've seized your cell phone, then they can certainly compel you to unlock it right then. If they drive up to the border and they suspect that you're high and they get to the point of a drug recognition evaluation, they've got bigger problems because impaired investigations at the border are notoriously complex. Yeah, they're almost always botched. But the, um, regardless, no, the point is, I mean, it's, it's actually quite frightening what you're raising and there's no way that parliament would have considered that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, the police could do that with actual relative ease if this is something that they've considered. Um, it makes and, me scared. Like, I don't, I don't, I... But, but think about the other things that they look for, okay? Um, some of the, I don't know that this has ever been discussed on this podcast, but one of the things that the police are trained to look for is green tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. Uh, I don't know if people are, you know, chewing on... Uh, fresh uh, marijuana leaves somewhere with, uh, that led to them uh, putting that in their training material. But, um, you know, they could certainly, under those circumstances, maybe after they've seized your phone, look for uh, any photos that you might have oh, that are yeah. incriminating that suggest that you use. Photos of you toking up, and then your photos are all geotagged, so they say where you used, and depending and the date of when and time of when they were taken. So they can say a proximity in time and distance to your driving of you smoking or or otherwise using cannabis or other drugs. The only reasonable, the, the only time I could I could imagine that they would go this route, however, would be in a death or a bodily harm case. But But I don't know. Like they take you for the DRE. They take you back to the detachment. They have a separate officer. You're involved in this lengthy physical examination. Why would they not take your phone? It's a big fishing expedition. Why would the arresting officer not go through your phone while you're going through the tests? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I see your point. I'm, uh, if, if they see that you're wearing a smartwatch that monitors those things, uh, they might be in a good position right there to say, you know, we, we need to seize this phone and this watch for investigative purposes to determine whether or not it will provide evidence that establishes the offense. And, and I think the only real recourse people have to keep that from happening is put a passcode on your phone. Well, there's that. 
But um, imagine having your phone seized in such a circumstance. Oh, you know, God. like your phone. <laughs> there are so <laughs> many phone, things on my phone, phone. Your phone is your life. I don't want to know what's on your phone. <laughs> no. But, but the way you're laughing is frightening me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, my imagine. plans for world domination. You know, maybe the police already know about this. Maybe they thought about it, or maybe they're going to get the idea listening to this podcast. Hi, police officers, don't do. Um, but but uh, if they haven't thought about it, somebody's going to figure it out, and then it's just going to become that maybe it could just become the standard thing in drug recognition evaluation. They could seize thousands of phones across the country in the next year. Oh. Gee, Justin Trudeau, did you think about that one when you passed Bill C-45 and C-46? Trudeau didn't pass them, but yes. Um, you know what I meant. I know what you meant. I, I, I will close off with one eensy bit of hope, and that's there's a lot of ways to attack the reliability of that data, so don't panic. No, I just worry about the phone being seized more than anything. Per- people losing their phone. But that's anytime their- you're arrested for anything. Yeah, but it doesn't happen. But here the police can persuade themselves that this is likely to lead to evidence that could be used in that investigation. Yeah. Well, you'd probably have a good case to get it back. I think many judges would be happy to order it back fairly quickly, but in any event. Stuff tough to call your lawyer to get your lawyer to get it back for you, though, when you don't have your phone. Well, if you're programming our number into your phone, you can do it right now. I'll say it nice and slowly. You just put your phone, you know, set it down so you can see the keypad and put it in your contacts. It's 604-685-8889. If you're going to get us in our Vancouver office, we also have an office in Richmond, 604 Three seven zero three zero five zero. And if you're particularly enterprising, tattoo it in green ink on your tongue. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Driving Law, the Acumen Law Corporation driving-related podcast. Uh, next week, we'll be back with a very interesting episode in which we are going to talk about animals and driving and law. Yes, they relate in very interesting ways. Tune in then.